2 Corinthians chapter 12 is where I want to be preaching from this morning, and I'll be reading and preaching from verses 11 through uh, 21. If you're physically able, I would encourage you, if you would, to stand as we read the Word of God together this morning. Beginning in verse 11, this is what the Word of God has to say. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty deeds, mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you. Forgive me for this wrong. Here for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your soul. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent you? I, I urged T Titus to go. I sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. In the last few years, I've had a bit of a transformation in my perspective on babies. When I was a young father and, and having babies, people used to look at us and, and comment to us, oh, don't you just love newborns? And the honest confession of it was, I love my newborn, but I don't like all night staying up and I don't like the fatigue and all the demands that newborns place upon you. But my newborns have grown up. And it's one of the things that I, I truly enjoy as a pastor is I love those hospital visits of brand new babies. And I've heard the words come out of my mouth now, oh, don't you love newborns? I love newborns today because when they, when they cry or they smell bad, I have somebody else to hand them back to. And I get all the fun parts, the, the sweet parts, the, the cuddle parts, all that kind of stuff. I have one standard advice I give to all couples who are expecting their first child. I tell them what you need to do in these months preceding the delivery of your precious baby that you're so anticipating 
is you two, as husband and wife, you need to go out to as many movies as you can afford. And after those movies, you need to go to restaurants and you need to enjoy a quiet meal at a restaurant. And after you've enjoyed the meal, you need to linger at the table over coffee and dessert and have unrushed, quiet, sweet conversation as long as you can. Because when that precious bundle of joy comes, everything changes. Do I hear an amen? Okay, some of you are so tired, you don't know what I'm talking about. I'm telling you as a one who used to have newborns in my life, that's some good advice because babies don't care how long the movie is or how good it is. They want to eat when they want to eat. They want to be changed when they need to be changed. And they're not willing to be quiet through an hour and a half or two hour long movie. So movies are out. New, uh, new parents will try to do the whole restaurant thing. But I remember early in, in, in the days of our children, I just said, I just, it's, it's, a, it's a pointless endeavor. And for me, it was a waste of money to go out to dinner because you, 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 you're feeding your newborn as soon as you sit down to keep them happy. And by the time your food comes, they're ready to move on to other things, screaming and crying. So you're just cramming the food in to, to get out of the restaurant because it's a miserable experience. Because newborns don't care how long the wait is. And they don't care how much you paid for your meal. They're hungry when they're hungry and they're ready to go when they're ready to go. I am convinced that the most fatigued people in the entire world are moms and dads with newborn babies at the house. We need to be kind to them. They're not thinking straight because they haven't had a good night's rest in a very long time. The relationship of parent to child is the one that Paul invokes as he comes to the close. And frankly, this passage is both precious in a declaration of his love for the church. And there's some hard words that he's saying here as well. And he uses this, this, this dynamic, this relational dynamic of parent with child to, to illustrate his relationship with the church. And I think that's a very important uh, relationship for us to understand in order to understand this passage. I want you to hear these three relational elements that the Bible teaches us in this passage. The first is expectations. Expectations of how believers should respond to the gospel and those who preach the gospel. Parents, you have often said to your children, you ought to do this, you should do this. Those are, those are, those are communications of expectations, not always met but they're communicated. This is what you should do. So we begin with what, how the church should respond to the gospel, how believers ought to respond to those who preach and teach faithfully the gospel. Then, realities. So the reality of it is that we don't live in a fairy tale world, that there is a great cost to ministry. And hear me very carefully, church. I'm not talking about just those who who have a title like pastor or Sunday school teacher or, or elder in the church. No, anyone who, who dares to faithfully teach, preach, exclaim, uh, explain the gospel of Jesus, there will be an endured cost. We need to reckon with those realities. And then lastly, what motivates us? Why would we continue to preach Jesus and the gospel of salvation at such great a cost. And I want to make the case today that whatever the cost, it's well worth it for the glory of Christ. 
Let's begin with expectations. I see that in the first few verses, verses 11 through 13, where Paul is really, this, we, we talked that last week in, in the previous verses, he concluded his defense. And if you've been with me these last few weeks, you may remember that really since chapter 10, Paul has been laying out his defense against the false teachers who have been accusing him, among other things, of lying about wanting to come and secondly, abusing the people. So using his his position amongst the people for personal gain. And so, and, and, and so in part of the defense that Paul's been giving is he's been bragging. And I, 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 don't, I don't have time to recap all of that, but essentially Paul has been debunking the, uh, the, the arrogance and braggadocious attitudes of the false teachers with brags of his own, but with every brag that he makes except for one, he says they're really, they're really worthless. That's why he begins in verse 11 here by saying, I have been a fool. You forced me into it. So in other words, I should have been carrying on like this. This is foolish, but you made me do it. And then he says, for I ought to have been commended by you. Paul's making the case here that the church should have honored the preaching of the gospel. The words should the words of ought are expressions of obligation. It's a sense of moral or legal requirement. If I say you should do something or you ought to do something, it's more than me just saying I want you to do it. I'm, I'm trying to communicate to you that there's, there's a moral implication, there's a legal implication that you should have, that the expectation was that you would have done such and such. When someone says to you that you should have done something or you ought to perform some task, that they're making more than a statement of request. They're making a moral judgment over you. And as Paul concludes his letter to the church and the defense of his ministry, he now turns his attention back to the church. He's made his defense for his ministry and the gospel that he's preached. And certainly he hopes that the church will, will turn away from the false teachers and back to, to himself and the gospel that he preaches but in verse 11, he makes the point that his defense and his rebuke of the false teachers should not have even been needed to be expressed. So he says, I really shouldn't even have to have said to you these last three chapters. Paul expresses two expectations of the church in the first three verses. The first being that the church should have honored the preaching of the gospel and the one who preaches it. You should honor the one who proclaims the gospel of Jesus. Now, there is a delicate balance that needs to be appreciated here. The primary honor is to the gospel of Jesus. Love the word of Jesus. Love the gospel that saves. The ancillary honor is to the one who preaches the gospel of Christ. And we must recognize that honor, you get that, that balance, because if you get it out of balance, then you may honor man over the gospel of Jesus. We see this balance in the second half of verse 11. So the, first Paul says that he is not inferior to the super apostles. And I, in my notes, I put super apostles in scare quotes because Paul doesn't mean that in that they are superior to him. I think he really means that in a sarcastic sense, that they're, they're not superior to him. But he says, I'm not inferior to the super apostles who were, who were preaching a false gospel. And yet in the same breath, he says that he is nothing. Both are true. He is worthy of honor because he preaches the true gospel. And at the same time, 
He is nothing because only Christ saves and is worthy of our worship and our glory and our honor. Those who have come to know the saving grace of Jesus, listen to me, those who have come to know the saving grace of Jesus will cherish the truth that, that rescued them above all other things. And brothers and sisters, what you love is what you will honor. You should love the gospel more than any other thing. And part of the expression of your love for the gospel will be seen in your love for those who preach the gospel. This is not a call to elevate man, but a recognition that those for whom God uses to preach and teach the gospel faithfully should be thankfully received by those who are the beneficiaries. Paul just says, listen, brothers, you've received something wonderful, life-changing, eternally transforming gospel message. And because of the great value of the gospel, there should be a, a connected honoring and celebrating of the one who preached the gospel to you. I've seen this demonstrated, I saw this demonstrated in and the affection of a friend of mine for this church. In fact, I saw it demonstrated in his affection for this church, even though he's never been, he was never a member of Central. And to my knowledge, the only time he's ever been here was when I had him come and preach for me about uh, eight or nine years ago. His name was Fred Evers. For the last 21 years of his life, he, he pastored Northside Baptist Church in in Tifton, Georgia. The Lord, Lord called him home just a few years ago in 2020. Anytime Fred and I would have a conversation and Central would, you, Central Baptist would come up, his face would light up, and he'd launch in on a story that I heard every single time we talked about you. You see, Fred had been led to, to the Lord by his home pastor in Florida. And years after pastoring Ed's, Fred's uh, home church, this pastor had come and been, a, been one of our pastors in, in previous years. Because Fred loved the gospel and understood how much it had transformed his life, he loved the man that first shared the gospel with him. And because that man happened to also be one of our pastors, he loved you. Not because you had anything to do with Fred or his salvation, but because there was a connection there. The same one that led him to Jesus had preached in this pulpit. And so anytime we talked about Central Baptist, he'd say, oh, let me tell you about my connection with Central Baptist. I'm thinking in my mind, Fred, I've already heard this story multiple times, but I'd let him tell it. And it demonstrated over and over again that how much he honored the one who preached the gospel, not because he was elevating a man above the proper station, because the pastor that preached the gospel to Fred Evers was nothing. But the gospel that he preached was everything. And so Fred loved the man who first preached the gospel to him. Love the gospel and honor its preaching in those whom God has called to preach. And as you do, I think Paul is also calling us to value the truth. In verse 12, Paul reminds the church that they themselves had witnessed the signs of true apostleship. Look at what he says. He says that the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And then he goes on and says, for in, in, in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? And, I, and then read this with a bit of a sarcastic tone. Forgive me this wrong. 
Paul's reminding the church that they themselves had witnessed the signs of, uh, of the true, his true apostleship by the, the signs that had been performed in their presence among them. Now, the Bible doesn't record what these signs were. And, and so we assume that as Paul writes these words, he knew that the ones he was spoke, speaking to, writing to, would be aware of what he was talking about. The point is not about the signs, but about the trustworthiness of the one who is preaching. The signs and wonders and mighty works of God that have been performed in the presence of the church were God's testimony to the authority and the authenticity of Paul's preaching. Here Paul expresses the, the, the second of the two expectations of the church. The first is that they should honor the one, uh, the, the, honor the gospel and the one who preaches, but here that, that the church should value truth. God gave Paul the ability to perform the signs and wonders and mighty deeds as a gift of grace so that they might receive the truth of the gospel. And yet even with these testimonies, even though they had personally witnessed these great and mighty things, it seems that the people had been led astray by others preaching a false gospel. Now, is this not also true of many of you? You may be saying, no, wait a minute, Pastor, I've not witnessed any deeds, mighty deeds and signs and wonders. But friends, unlike the Corinthians, you have the full testimony of the New Testament, of all the signs and all the wonders and mighty works of God, not the least of which is the death and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension to heaven. You, unlike most of the world, throughout all of history, all of history are unique in that you have unfettered access to copies of the whole Bible in the language of your native tongue. Many of you brought a copy of Scripture. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, take the one home that's in the, in the pew pocket in front of you. It is free to you, but you can get it on your, on your, on your phone. You can, you can get a free copy about anywhere else. The, the, the ministry of the Gideons is amazing in putting Bibles in hotels and hospitals. And as a result of all of that, the reality of it is you have readily access to a Bible that is in your tongue. And friends, you're unique in all of history because for most of history, that was not true. You should read some of the historical accounts of having to chain the copy of Scripture to the pulpit so that it would not be stolen, not because of vandals, but because it was the only copy of Scripture available to a community. And unlike most of the generations before you, you're unique in that you're, most of you, that probably the majority of you are literate. You can read the scriptures on your own. And for all this testimony to the truth of the gospel, so many of you are tempted to value the lies of the world over the testimony of God's truth. The measure of what you value is not in what you say. The measure of what you value is in what you sacrifice for, what you give your attention to in your time and in your money, and what you elevate over other things. And so if you have a choice, what do you choose over other things? What you defend as true, what you allow to control your life. Dear friends, the truth of the gospel should hold a place of primacy in your life. It should be honored above all other things and before all other things. It should be defended in your heart and mind and in your life. 
It should be what regulates your life. What you ought to do, what you should do. It's honor the gospel preaching and value the truth. But then Paul moves to the realities. In verse 14, Paul says, Here for the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you, for children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly be gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I, be to, am I to be loved less? Friends, there is a great cost to ministry. In verses 14 through 16, Paul affirms again that he is planning and desirous of coming again to the Corinthian church, that he will not be a financial burden upon the church. If you remember from previous chapters, who had been supporting Paul financially was not the Corinthians, even though they were a very wealthy community. Other churches had been supporting Paul so that he did not take any support from the Corinthian church. And he says, essentially, I'm going to do that again because I love you. And his main concern, he says, is for their eternal salvation. I want your souls. That's what I want. In the second half of verse 14, Paul uses the analogy of parent to children to illustrate his relationship to the church. When a baby is born, the baby has no expectation to provide for the parents. The total expectation is assumed by, the total burden is assumed by the parent to provide for the child. That's the way it works. Parents provide for the children. The children do not provide for the parents. The level of sacrifice of parents for children cannot be understood until you have children. There have been several moments in my life as a parent that I have come to a new, deeper, understanding, appreciation for what my parents did for me. You, you cannot know what you do not know. So as a kid, I was appreciative, but, but only as a parent do I truly understand the depths of sacrifice and heartache and worry and concern and all the rest of the things that, that went along with, with raising me. For all the headache the church has caused Paul, his response is like a parent to an ungrateful or a wayward child. Parents, no matter the ungratefulness or rebelliousness of your children, would you not even now give all that you have that they might be right with God? Regardless of all the history that's gone before you, harsh words, unkind words, unfair words, accusatory words, all the rest, family, every family has those conversations. If you could right now, sacrifice something of yours for the salvation of your children's soul, would you not do it? I, I, I would imagine for those of you parents who know the Lord, there wouldn't even require a second thought. Like parenting, ministry has a significant cost. For parents who are struggling to lead your family to honor the Lord, there is a great cost. For husbands or wives who are praying for the salvation of your spouse, there is a great cost. For churches that are working to share the gospel, gospel with the community in which we sit, there is a great cost. For missionaries who are endeavoring to take the gospel to people groups and lands that have not yet heard the gospel, there is a great cost. But notice the connection to what Paul said the church should honor and value 
what I just spoke about in the, in the first point of the, the, uh, the expectations. Paul honors the preaching of the gospel and values the salvation of the Corinthians enough to personally endure the cost it will require. That's why he says, I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Friends, that has to be our heartbeat. Not for temporary advancement or success, but for the glory of God and the salvation of the lost, we must be willing to spend and be spent for the souls of the lost. The reality is you cannot follow Jesus without paying a cost. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When confronted with the surpassing value of knowing Jesus, the reality of the cost is well worth it. There is a great cost to ministry. And the other reality is that faithful ministry often invites opposition. So in 17 and 18, Paul is likely responding to what he was being accused of. Paul was being accused of what he had not done by what the false teachers were actually doing. And by the way, that's nothing new. Liars and cheaters and wicked men often use, accuse others of doing the very thing that they're doing. He was accused of using his spiritual authority to exploit the Corinthian church, and specifically for money. The irony of it was the false teachers were actually doing that, and the reality of it was Paul and all those he had sent to the Corinthian church had not burdened them financially, and in fact had been supported by other Christians in other places. Of course, this was not true of Paul or anyone that Paul had sent to the church. But why would they make such unfounded charges? Why would some accuse Paul who was innocent of sin that others they supported were guilty of? The answer is not found in reality, logic, in fairness, in objectivity, or any sort of real justice. The answer comes from the wickedness of the heart of men. Paul had confronted in the church wickedness that some of the church had tolerated and willfully overlooked. And when confronted with the exposure of sin, there are generally two reactions that you have. One is to mournfully repent. The other is to angrily accuse. That usually sounds like, well, how about when you or who are you to say this because you, or to in some way find an accusation that turns the attention away from your sin and tries to focus it on someone else. Now, I want to be honest with you for just a moment. All of us, when we're confronted with sin, the most natural impulse is to be angry, angry and accuse. That's generally where we start. How dare you say that to me? But friends, Forgiveness, restoration only comes with mournful repentance. 
I think what was happening in the church where there were some who, when confronted with their sin, were unwilling to be mournfully repentant. They were stiff-necked, and so they were angry, and they were accusing. Because it is easier to accuse the one who confronts your sin with wrongdoing than than to repent of the sin that was exposed. One of the commentators that, that I read preparing for you this morning wrote these words. He says, hidden sin in the life will result in unfair criticism of the servants of God who stand against the things of that kind and seek to lift up a standard of holiness and purity. No one enjoys being the target of unfair accusations. But the reality is that if you speak truth among a culture that loves sin, you will invite opposition and hostility. The reality is that even in the church, if you love your brothers and sisters enough to speak truth into their life, about their sin, you will become the focus of unfair accusations. When Paul was writing instructions to Timothy, who is himself a pastor, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul instructed Timothy not to receive an accusation against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is likely in recognition that the one who was most responsible for preaching and teaching the word in the church would also be the one who was most often accused of unrightful sin and and, and unrighteousness and would be the focus of the majority of false accusations. That's why he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 5, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Brothers and sisters, honor the gospel enough to proclaim it even at the expense of offending the lost. Value truth enough to speak truth to one another even at the cost of being opposed by those who hate the truth. The reality of it is that there is a cost to ministry. And if you'll be faithful in being who and speaking what God has called you to do and speak, you'll be opposed by those who hate the truth. So the question is, what motivates us? What keeps us going? What causes us to continue to move forward understanding these costs? Understanding that often the church does not do what they should do and ought to do. I want to speak and demonstrate from this passage the motivations that I think Paul points to. And the first is, the first part of verse 19, I think that we are motivated for the testimony of Christ. Paul says in verse 19, the very beginning, he says, have you been thinking all along that I've been defending ourselves to you? In other words, did you think for these last few chapters that I've been writing and making my defense of my ministry that I was standing before you and defending my ministry uh, for you? And and the, and the, the subtext would be hoping that you would recognize the legitimacy of my ministry. Well, that seemed like that would be a logical conclusion, but he says, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and for your building up, beloved. In other words, what motivated Paul was not the approval of men or the the approval of false teachers or even that they would recognize his his defense as true. What was motivating him was the testimony of Christ. Verse 19 defines the testimony and defense of Paul's ministry to a different standard. He asked that rhetorical question that indicates that the defense that the defense he was given was not directed toward the church or those who were accusing Paul of being disingenuous. And that would have been a natural assumption that Paul was defending himself to and from his accusers. But this is not the focus of his defense. Paul has been defending the ministry in the sight of God. In other words, I stand before God 
in his judgment, not you. The judgment of the validity and authenticity of his ministry is determined by God alone and not the opinion of men. All who walk in obedience before the Lord do so in the sight of God. Serve the Lord not for the praise of man, but before the Lord as a testimony to Christ. Give sacrificially, not out of legalism, but before the Lord as a testimony to Christ. Preach the gospel. Teach the truth of God. Not to make much of yourself, but before the Lord as a testimony to Christ. Brothers and sisters, your first motivation must be the testimony of Christ. Bear witness to what he has done in your life. Bear witness to who he is. Bear witness to his power to save as a testimony of Christ. That's what motivates us. That we might be a testimony of Christ. And then secondly, that we might be building up the church. So Paul says in that very first part of verse 19 that he says, that uh, is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Paul's defense was before the Lord, but his efforts were all for the building up of the saints and the church. Are not many of the, the problems, of the church's problems caused when the members speak, seek what is best for them rather than building up the fellowship. And like a parent who presses on through difficult days with their child, Paul is willing to press on with the church so that they may be built up and blessed. In other words, I've done it all, dear friends, for your building up. And then just to remind them, he calls them beloved. I love you. Build up means more than just growing in numerical attendance. The building up of the church means growing in faith, growing in biblical understanding, growing in a biblical faithfulness. Friends, be motivated by what blesses, encourages, strengthens, and builds up the church. Because the church is indeed the beloved, those whom God loves, and those who the saints have called, been called to love for the testimony of Christ, for the building up of the church. And then in the last two verses, I think we see for the purity of the church. The final two verses are heartbreaking to read. Paul openly expresses his concern, I might even say worry, that when he was able to return to the church, that he would find the church that had grown comfortable with and welcoming of rebellious sin. Paul had previously spoken harshly of those living in open sin, and he had, I think, dreaded the thought of returning to find that he would have to speak again hard words to the church. It's interesting to read Paul. He writes very harshly, but he often talks of his desire not to have to say it face to face. We've all had those conversations. They can make your, your gut sick, even thinking about those kind of conversations. Paul says, I think he's saying, it's a dreadful thought to think I've, when I come, I'm going to find sin that must be confronted. In the church, there is a great temptation. Listen to me, friends, listen to me. 
there is a great temptation among us to seek harmony over obedience, to seek peace over purity, to seek tranquility over biblical faithfulness. But those who are motivated by the testimony of Christ in the building up of the church are also, will also be motivated by the purity of the church. The membership of our church bears testimony to the faithfulness of the church and the hope of the gospel. When you walk amongst our community and you say, I am a member of Central Baptist Church, you are bearing a witness. This is what a believer looks like. If you're living in open, rebellious sin, you're bearing a horrible testimony that somehow you can be right with God while having rebellion in your life. Friends, if you love the church, if you love the gospel, it's a testimony unto Jesus as for the building up of the church and for the purity of the testimony of all of that in the church, we must confront sin among us. When the church's testimony is polluted by unconfessed sin, the effectiveness of our testimony is seriously damaged and weakened. Be motivated to pursue holiness in your own life and among the fellowship. What are you willing to give up for Jesus? What are you willing to sacrifice for the kingdom? In the 1750s, prior to the American Revolution, the most present existential threat to the English colonials was the Native Americans. In the second half of the 1750s and into the 17, uh, 1760s, England was at war with France in the French and Indian War. And so Indian tribes said that were hostile to England were also hostile to British colonials. It was common for towns on the frontier's edge to build defenses around the town. In fact, it was common for individual homes to build defensive measures around their home because attacks were so common. Pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards lived in this context of hostility. During a season when he and his family lived in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, which sat on the very edge of the frontier, Edwards gave much of his attention to the evangelism and missionary efforts of American Native Americans. It was a, danger, a dangerous endeavor, but he saw some success for his efforts. And because his family lived so close and had so many interactions with Native Americans, his son, Jonathan Jr., had become quite proficient in speaking some of the native languages. When Gideon Holly, a missionary, began planning to travel some 200 miles into the frontier to, to interact more intimately with the Native Americans, to evangelize them and share the gospel, Edwards recognized the value that his son would give to the effort. His son, Jonathan Edwards Jr., could speak the language and would be tremendously helpful to, to Holly's missionary efforts. 
So Jonathan Edwards sent Jonathan Edwards Jr. with Holly as a helper and translator. The father wrote the son on his 10th birthday, on his 10th birthday, to prepare him for what he would endure and honestly warn him that his life would be in danger and of the reality that he may not return home. Father writing to his son wrote these words, this is a loud call of God to you to prepare for death. Ten years old. How could a father allow his son to be in such danger? Did Jonathan Edwards not know the danger that his son would be in? Certainly he did. The Edwards home, and in fact, the Edwards family, his extended family, had intimately known the dangers of Indian attacks. Did Jonathan Edwards not know the risk that his son would be exposed to? Certainly he knew very well, maybe even better than his son, the danger that he was going to experience. What then could possess a father to willingly surrender his son to such a dangerous mission? The answer, my friends, is the gospel. Jonathan Edwards Sr. understood that the only hope of redemption is in Jesus. That hope was for him and his family, but it was also for his enemies, the Native Americans, that were a daily threat to his life and well-being. So to take for the sake of the loss and the glory of Christ, he surrendered his own son that his political enemies might become his brothers in Christ. The cost of the gospel is great. The reality of it is often when you are faithful with the gospel, you'll endure the hostilities of the world. The reality of it is often the church and those who ought to honor the gospel don't honor the gospel. The reality is often those who should love the truth often don't love the truth. The cost of the gospel is great, but it's worth whatever we give for it. Endure the cost for the glory of Christ. Endure the cost for the sake of the lost. Whatever you may give, it will not be enough to match the glory, the wonder, the greatness of the gospel of Jesus. The cost of love is great, but Jesus bore more than we'll ever give. For the glory of Christ and the testimony and salvation of the lost, give it all for Jesus.
Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.